Welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I am your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today I'm talking to Tony Panda, the second of two detailed looks at what it takes to get your net promoter score to be world class. What does it take so that Fred Reichelt visits you and says that he thinks this is the best implementation of the Ultimate Question 2.0 that he has seen? I spoke in the last interview with Fiona McDonnell, who was the guy that kicked off the whole program for Macquarie Telecom Group. Now I'm talking to Tony Panda, who picked it up for the cloud services division when they separated their support team from the telco business a few years ago. Talked to Tony about how he hires, what it means to build a great culture, how he solved the problem of hiring millennials and giving them a meaningful job, by giving them fixed-term contracts, and also how he takes the whole idea of getting a 10, and how do you make that, how do you gamify 10 out of 10 in terms of getting promoters, what he calls legends and his league of legends in his services team. I hope you enjoy the discussion. I'm Tony Panda, I'm the Head of Operations here at Macquarie Cloud Services. Okay. Tony, thank you for uh, speaking to me today. I'm really keen to explore in some detail how you run what you call the HMC, which is your hosting management center. That's right. That's right. Because I've spent a lot of my career in service delivery, particularly in IT services, and have used Net Promoter Score. And you guys have got, what's your Net Promoter Score now? Plus 85 as it's running at the moment. Okay. And so, look, we know that that's world class. But if I take you back to the beginning, what, what was it the first time you, you ran it in well, cloud services? The first services? time we ran it across certain segments was down in minus 70. It's catastrophically awful, that, isn't it? Plus minus 70. And how long ago was that when, it was, when you first did it and it was that bad? I would say around six and a half years ago. So what I'm trying to do is... I spoke recently at an event in Glasgow and there were, I don't know, I think 20, 30 people in the room and I said, these are all managed service providers, MSPs, and I said, how many of you use Net Promoter Score or have heard of Net And only one person put their hand up and said that they'd heard of it and nobody was using it at all. And so I was absolutely staggered because it's been almost since when Fred Reichel published his original paper in the Harvard Business View, it's been something I've done something with or I've been in a company and we've been using it and so you sort of get blase about it and you think everybody must know and it must be a thing and in fact I met somebody recently who said oh we did net promote and it didn't work so we've given it up and I feel like maybe we've gone full cycle on it but then I meet a load of people who for whom it could be super super powerful but when I look at your score of 85 I just what I don't want to do is for people to feel as though that's unattainable and you've done stuff that means that they can't start on the journey which is why I was keen to know how long ago it was awful Mm -hmm. so you know when somebody goes and does it for the first time what I want to try and do is try and extract from you the hints and tips things that you did that gave you a bump along the way things you got right things you got wrong so that people can wherever they are on the journey there's something that they can go implement what was the first thing you did when you realized it was minus? Like, where did you start six years ago? What did you do? What Did you restructure? Did you change stuff? How were you structured then? 
So there were a number of things that took place at the time. So the initial survey that went out and asked the question, how likely are you to recommend Macquarie to a friend or colleague? And a lot of feedback came back. And it obviously wasn't very good because the score was a minus 70. We dissected all the feedback and try to understand what it is. Because the NPS is ultimately, the score is an output. It's what your behaviours are, what you do, and understanding the customer's feedback, what they're unhappy about. And when we took on a plan to understand what that was and what were the repeating consistent themes that were coming in, if we tackle some of those, that should make the needle move higher and get customers happier. Key ones were around engineers answering phone calls. So we had a service desk that used to take the phone calls, but it went through the general, ask 10, 15 questions that you ask, have you rebooted this, have you checked the lights on that? But we're talking hosting customers, we're talking customers who know Unix, they know their servers, they know it's every second is critical. So going through that 10, 15 question, usual questionnaire that is asked from a service desk, that wasn't working for the customer. So that was, let's say, the first thing that we had to go and solve. How do we solve that? So you thought, you had some consistency and it was working. And only when you did an NPS, you realized that it was just really annoying. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, all that thing we've been training people on, they hate it. Yeah. So the key thing from there was they loved the way, the magic of how they were serviced. So they loved the hospitality around it. They loved how they were, the calls were answered, how the people were. They're really nice and friendly people. They wanted to be super helpful. Unfortunately, they just didn't understand the technology. So at that point, we spent about six months trying to work out how do we rebuild this? And it involved asking some challenging questions of the current staff that we had. Do we want to continue to work with these? And let's first understand the profile of what we're looking for. So we're looking for hospitality. So that's key. So the magic of what we had in our hub, which is our um, call center service desk, how do we maintain what the customers loved about that part of the DNA? And then combine that with what I say, the, the matrix code reading Neo DNA that can just see through the code and understand how to solve problems. So we wanted to combine that two together. And then we, once we built that profile of what we're looking for, the best answer that came out is, well, we're an Australian business, we wanna give opportunities to Australians and local Australians. So we'll go hit the local university circuit. They haven't been tarnished or, or trained in any other way. So we've got an opportunity to train them. And now we'll put a rigorous interview process in place that they actually understand the technical ability, but they also understand the customer-centric hospitality DNA. And it wasn't easy. We had to make some hard decisions and let a number of people go from the business because they didn't want to align to what we were looking at. And then we kicked off with the, the graduates and brought them on, trained them up on how to be concierges, to our customers, but also be concierges that could actually log on to the tools and resolve that issue immediately for them. So people who left the business at that point, what what were the things that they didn't do or didn't want to do? So the key thing that came out, when they were originally hired, they were hired as engineers. And they believed that their job is to be locked away in a room, working on code, and have no connection with the customer. If you flip that on its head, what are you doing all this code for and what are you here to do? You're only really doing this for our customers and our business to service the customers. We're in the hospitality trade. We're just in IT, but we're still in, in every aspect of what we do. We're in hospitality for our customers. We've got to get them the result. From someone who's in a hotel to someone who's on a IT router or a switch or something, this is all very important to them. 
So it was an understanding from them, and, and a lot of people did actually stay. It, was, it wasn't everybody that decided this isn't for us, but the decision was quite clear to them that that's not what I signed up for. I signed up to be an engineer, and that doesn't mean talking to customers. And that just didn't fit with what we needed to do. Because you wanted people on the telephone. Absolutely. Everybody talks to customers. So one of the other things in the team was, so when we structured the team, we, we have the usual tier one, two, three, and four in the team. And the understanding of everybody in the team was, once you've graduated from being a tier one, you go off the phones. That was an inherent problem across there. One of the quick changes earlier, no one ever graduates away from being from the phone. We're all here to talk to the customer. The round robin calls will pre-select the tier ones. If they're all busy on a call, falls over to two, falls over to three, falls over to four. And if they're all busy, falls over to the manager. Any one of us can pick up that call, understand what's going on, give the customer feedback. I mean, over the last five years, our average time to answer a call is under three seconds. Now, some people would look at that and say, under three seconds, you've probably got too many people on board. You know, that, those sort of stats don't happen. No, the fact that anyone can answer the call is why that happens. And what were they before? Do you remember what your average call answer time was before you put everybody back on the phone? Yeah, well, the calls were answered by the service desk at that time. Right, So, okay. so it was probably around the, you know, 25, 30 second sort of period. But... The criticality of when then the call in the 10 minute delay and then transferring that call over to someone in the engineering team by the time they would get time to look at that and follow up. So in theory, whilst the answer call time might have seemed a bit shorter, the actual reality was averaging about an hour before you actually got an engineer who, who probably had an idea about what the problem might be to actually suddenly get in touch with you. Okay. So we're going from ultimately one hour to three seconds, if, if you want to think of it in that light. Okay. You still triage calls or? No, so the, the call is triaged by an engineer who okay. answers the call. And do you have level one engineers? or No, the level you... one engineers, okay. yeah. So the level one, um, one of the other things was first time fix. So we, we'd identified through some CSI, continual service improvement, what are the general faults or the commonalities between what happens and we want to build a database and how can we quickly get first time fix instilled into everybody which is usually when I look at it from a service desk, there's 80 to 90% of issues are repeatable issues, 20%, 10 to 20% are the, the non-standard sort of things, the odd ones that come in. In a technical environment, it's the other way around. 20% of calls and faults can generally be similar type faults, but 80% is trying to find, look for a heat needle in a haystack and trying to understand the topology and the infrastructure. So how can we get that 20% out of the way as quickly as we could. So we built a knowledge base and that knowledge base grew within 18 months to over nearly 700 articles just based totally on these are all the things that go and it's at your fingertips and, and the engineers could save time and, and it helped training. And what was the workflow to create that knowledge base? What, who wrote the articles? How did they get fed in? How... So what I launched was uh, something called a, um, it was similar to like an um, incentive program so each month you could earn points by submitting articles. So the team were responsible for putting the articles in. If someone had a question or they weren't sure, we identified that fault as that fault hasn't had a knowledge base article. Who wants to put their hand up to write it? Now, some of the guys would put up their hands to write, hey, I'll do those. I'll sort of cherry pick out of a um, repository. We list out all these are the ones. And people initially would feel, 
oh, if I put something up, I must now have to write the article on it and I don't really want to have to write the article, so they'd stay quiet. The incentive was each month you get 10 articles, 10 points from 10 articles. If you write a complex article, myself or my team leader at the time would review the article and if that's a pretty serious article, you get three points for it or a standard article, an easy one, you get a point for it. Everyone needed to contribute 10 points each to the knowledge of the team. Ah, okay, so you weren't volunteering. Everybody had to do something. Everybody had to do something. Okay. It wasn't one person's responsibility to, to write the, to the, the article. The team are contributing that. to the team's knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And does that still continue That today? still continues to so this you, day. Every time you find a ticket to which there's no knowledge base article? Someone it, in the, gets into the repository, someone picks it up, they put that in, and then we actually celebrate and reward the individual who's contributed most to the knowledge of the team. So it's one of the incentive ah, schemes okay. that we so also run in the team. There's some sort of guru. Yeah. What's the frequency of sort of refresh? Do you have to keep going back and pulling those articles out? Or during the normal course of events on the desk, does somebody find an article that isn't quite right, flags it for an update? Is that So they can flag it for an update, but they've all got read-write access to the articles and they can go update the articles. They, we use um, Confluence to do that and then they can send a notification to everyone. This article's been updated, guys, keep an eye on it. We use heat maps to check which articles are being referred to the most. Okay. That way we can also then see, looks like this area or this technology needs the most training for people because ah. they keep referring to that area and everyone seems to keep going back there. Or there's areas where they haven't been touched for some time those look like everyone seems to be quite versed in that. We probably don't need to spend too much time training people in that area, but definitely over here because everyone keeps referring to an article. Fantastic. And then when you deliver training, do you deliver that formally in classrooms? Do you do it sort of out of hours? People go and do it online? What? There's a variation of all that. So there's online videos. Our biggest knowledge base here are our senior engineers in the team so our specialists and our architects so they take time out in their day spend half day workshops training people on certain products and certain technologies we certify industry certify each one of our team within the HMC so every six months it's compulsory it's built into their contracts that we will certify them in an industry certification so first six months let's say it's a Cisco CCNA your next six months could be your ITIL foundation so hold on to that thought. Yeah. So let me take you back. You've created this service desk. You've started the service desk now, taking its own calls rather than coming through the telco first line. Mm-hmm. And you decide to hire grads. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to hire grads? Was that you made that leap? Because you obviously you had a team, and so hiring grads is. Was it about cost? Was it about access of skills? Was it about attitude? What was the we're going so, to hire grads. So from my perspective, I, I probably didn't look at cost, but a result from it for the business ended up being cost, but that wasn't what I was looking at. For me, there were a few problems I wanted to solve. One was how do I get a blank canvas to paint on our culture, what we want to try and do in the customer DNA. And the second part was attrition. We were losing a lot of people. The average tenure of someone in the team would be probably around 12 to 14 months that get some technical skills on the resume and and just wanted out of that room because they saw that there was just too much. Customers were unhappy, irrelevant of the engineering effort they put in. And they couldn't relate that to just being able to have that conversation. So there was a few things going on at that time. Okay, so you've got, you're not worried about cost, but you want attitude. You don't want people who've come from somewhere else who've Mm -hmm. gone through level one to level two and feel like they've already, they're too superior to answer the phone anymore. So what did you do? You, how did you go and find grads? 
So back to the previous question around how do we know grads would be here? So part of it was that. And then we also looked across the business who our success stories were. And they were the odd one or two grads that we had brought into the business at different points. And they were accelerating through the business. They were, and it was plain to everyone that it was because they didn't have any of the baggage that they came with from somewhere else or that level of superiority or anything like that. So how do we go about getting the grads on board? That that's, continues to this day being one of the most exciting parts of the role and also one of the most challenging parts of the uh-huh. role. So we looked at the local universities. We wanted to be flexible around the working shifts. So we created three working shifts, which was the 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., 3 p.m. to midnight, and then an 11 p.m. till 9 a.m. night shift. And we went out thinking, well, look, one of the key things for the new millennials that come through is some of them don't want to work evening, some of them want to lie in, some of them have got uni tutorials at different times. So if we were like, if we've got these three distinct shifts, you pick one of those and you're on one of those. And also when we hire you, you're on a two-year contract in any one of those roles while we train you. Okay, hang on, just wind back a sec because I know the answer to this. Okay. <laughs> right, so you just said pick a shift because you've got uni tutorials. So the one thing which is unique about the scheme I think that you've put in place was that you weren't hiring people who had actually left university. Absolutely. You yeah. were hiring people who are still at university and you were saying to them that last year of uni, don't do it full-time, do it part-time. Absolutely. And you're so, saying instead of competing with everybody else in Sydney for computer science graduates who've graduated, you said, which is, I think it's a genius move, right, we're going to get you at the end of year two and we're going to say, don't study the last year full time, study the last year part time and we'll pay you and we'll hire you and we'll give you a two year contract. So when you leave university, you've got two years work experience and a degree. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you could leave Macquarie and you're in a much better position than any other graduate because you will have set yourself up for a job. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and who thought of that, though? That was um, myself with a working group at that time, sat down and we came up with what could this look like and how can we do that. The program had started off with one or two to see how it would work and it had been successful. How we're going to push that out to now build an entire team of graduates in that end of their second year, third year. And and we've had to tune over the years. We've had this program running for five or six years now. And where we've come to now is we can pick up the students quite easily. We're already, the conversation that we're leading with is around the flexibility. Which days do you have your lectures? Oh yeah, look, if I were to go part-time, you know, challenges them to check their timetable. Look, it would have to be Tuesdays and Thursdays. I can't see how I could work full-time. How about if Tuesdays and Thursdays were your weekend? Oh, could that happen? Because I thought it was just Monday to Friday. Yeah, of course it could happen. What time are your lectures? Oh, well, I have one at 12 o'clock on a day. Well, the university's walking distance here. How about you have a two-hour lunch break on that day and you made up that time on another day? Oh, can I do that? Yeah, absolutely. There aren't many employers out there that would have that level of flexibility, especially on a tier one type role where you'd have to come in on this day, you'd have to be that day, the shift rosters to consider, there's 365, the seven days a week. And so a lot of effort went in, especially when I remember sitting there trying to put a shift roster together, knowing that certain days of the week are weekends for others and how I'm going to do these and these and these. And so it's a lot easier. So now when someone unplugs from and they move up to a different role or that, next semester the uni timetable has changed and the Tuesdays and the Thursdays is no longer the weekend days they want the Thursday and the Friday how do we accommodate do that? you use a piece of software to manage no, no, we, we, you you know, you'll laugh we use an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we use an Excel spreadsheet and um, do you know what 
it isn't as hard as it sounds. Right. It was one to design it. Took me days in the shower, just in the steam, putting things up on a, on a shower screen and coming up with what that could look like. And when I came back in with a Eureka moment, I tested it with someone. They're like, oh, you probably haven't worked out the amount of hours they need to do. They haven't. When they, and when they were trying to bust holes through it, it just worked. So somehow it wired up in my head around how this roster will work. So I'm happy to share that if anyone ever wants to have a see about that. Well, we'll get your that. contact details yeah. at the end so that people can ping you for that if, if they want to. So you get this second year in uni and you say, come and work with me. We'll fit in some working with you. It'll take you two years to finish your degree and not one. So day one, they start. What have you got mapped out for them over the two years? So that's pretty easy. Um, So when they start, um, it starts with their contract. So when they receive their contract, in their contract, there's a table in there showing them this is when you start. So zero to six months, you're going to be doing your CCNA. And you start with us on X salary, and when you attain your CCNA and being able to fulfill the job as being done well, you'll unlock another $5,000 in your salary. And every six months, it's our commitment to you, and it's, it's in the contract. So most employers will be, yeah, we, we offer training, we'll do this, we'll do that. Sorry, budgets have gone off, we don't have this. This, this is actually in stone set to you. It's our commitment to you, but it's also you're signing your commitment to us that you're going to pursue each one of these and actually complete them. And if you don't, unfortunately, you're not performing. Oh, but I'm doing the job so well, I hear sometimes, and I just missed the certification. That's the commitment that you made to us. We have to hold true to the commitment that you made. And it's about your learning as well as our learning towards what we offer you. So it's very important that key part of it. When they start day one, we have a 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, what technology is, um, accelerating their learning, understanding probably the, we call it the easy 20%, but the 20% repeatable stuff that comes on so we can get them up and going. They're double jacking on the phones, they're listening to what the other engineers are doing. It's like the flight deck of a 747 when you walk into one of these operation centers, screens and phones and everything's quite daunting for a you know a third year starting graduate at university who has never worked a day in his life potentially is now walking into the flight pit of a 747 and then you're basically saying we're going to get you to fly this thing solo in three months and they can almost be that's never going to happen I can never see myself doing it and then when you see them three months later helping the next grad that's coming through the door hey it's quite easy this is how you do it so we know that we've been tuning and tweaking that learning and development onboarding plan for these guys to come on board and, and, and we're still learning and getting it better and better and what happens at the end of the two years? So they've now got their degree. Do they have to finish their degree? They have to finish. So to us, it's very important and we hold their degree because as you can imagine, they've now got the job, they're earning the money. How important is the degree to them? So in the regular you know, fortnightly one-to-ones that we have with each one of them is to stay close to how important and reiterate Getting each one of these certifications is as important as the degree that you've set upon that you really want to attain. It's important that you get that degree because in your life, as you go along, same as these certifications, it's one of those things that you need and you can demonstrate that I have a Bachelor of Science in Computer Studies, I've done my CCNA. It's all valuable and makes you into that valuable package that's going to be worth a six-figure salary in a few years' time. So. At the end of the two years, when we get to the 18-month mark, we identify this individual's been doing really well, they're hitting all their certifications, we really want to retain them. And at that 18-month mark, we offer them, at the end of their two years, the further two years as a tier two. 
So they don't need to worry about what am I going to do when they get to the 18 month mark? My contract's going to run out in six months. Am I going to have another job at the end of it? Do I now have to go figure out what happens or is someone going to come and talk to me? At the 18 month mark, we have identified how well they've done and then we move them into the tier two role. We are given them an offer for the tier two role once they've successfully completed their second year. And then the tier two role starts again with another two year contract with every six months with more senior certifications during that time. So it's really a, a four year welcome to life. And in the, in the second two year block, is it the same thing? A certification every six months and a pay rise every six months again? That's right, yeah. yeah okay. So that ultimately takes you from, you finish uni, what's you're today's, earning. What's today's starting salary? $45,000. And so you go? So two years you get to 65. When you start the tier two, you start the tier two at 70, and then you go up to 90. Okay. Yeah, and then at 90, you've reached your four years. And at that point, we'd be looking at bringing you into other parts of the business where the starting salary would be circa $100,000 between 90 and 100. So, you know, we, we hold true to the promise that you'll earn six-figure salary at the end of your four years if you do a great job and you get all your certifications. And you had churn as a problem at the beginning when you started this. Mm -hmm. um, what's your voluntary attrition today? Zero percent. Okay, and how many people fail? Yeah, so zero percent of people quit mm -hmm. who you wanted to keep, but, but how many people that you hire don't make it to two years? So the first three months is see how they learn and how they grow okay. when we get to six months. Now, in the beginning, when we started this off, there were a lot of people weren't getting past the three-month period. And then there were people who wouldn't get past the six-month period. So there were the two areas of concern. So what was going on and why? Part of it was onboarding and training. Some of it was the university, even though they went part-time, they actually took on three or four modules that semester. What we found was the ones that were successful were only doing two modules a semester. So what we realized with all the extra added work, understanding the job, understanding the certs that you're doing, and undertaking four modules in a uni semester, that was not going to be, you're not going to have a successful time. So where we've got to now, when we hire someone, we've got the DNA part right, and now we've got the onboarding and training right. So people get through and they get to the two years. The challenge at the moment is when you get to the two years, how many people may get from the two years and get the second two years. What we find is it's usually the ones that aren't interested or want to go traveling or there's, there's other drivers in their life. They're not considering or thinking about the future and they're just thinking, well, in two years, I'll have uni finished. What do I do next? I just want to go traveling. We do get a few of those that move on and go off. But our promise back to them was, you've done two years with us. We've trained you. You've got industry certifications. You're much better off when you hit the market than anyone that was actually, as you said earlier, graduating from university and hitting directly after finishing uni with no work experience. Totally. And so how many grads a year are you hiring at the moment? Anywhere between six and ten. So not a huge numbers. Not a huge numbers. How many people apply? So we go through, um, I probably interview maybe 50 people before I hire one. So slightly less than one in 10. That's right. Yeah. And what are you doing to winnow out the other nine? What questions are you asking? What are you looking for? Because uh, I was speaking to your, your recruiter today and Daniela said that she thinks that you're very picky. So what is it that you're picking so that people could learn from your experience of trying to find these 
these rock stars. <laughs> it's interesting you say picky. So I don't compromise. It's probably the, the <laughs> Tony's not picky. Yeah. He just I just don't he, compromise. He doesn't compromise. Yeah, fight, yeah, fight. So to me, it really comes down to if, if we're hiring a grad and we're hiring a blank canvas into there, the lens that I'm applying to that individual is not just the do I have an immediate need. Yes, I have an immediate need. I need an engineer on a seat to do something for me. In every aspect, in any role that will be open, you have an immediate need. I refrain from the urge for that immediate need. I've also spoken to the business about, I may have had counts open for longer periods of time, and I don't want to be under any pressure. If I don't fill them, I lose them. So the business has accepted from me that Tony is unique in what he's doing here, that when he has headcounts open, he will fill them with the right person. Even if we go past the financial year and they're still open, I don't get a headache on that. The other things that I, I look at when I'm hiring the individual is the five to 10 years. How, what do I see this individual? Can I pick up certain key points in this individual, what they'll be like in two years, four years, five years, as opposed to asking the question, where do you see yourself in five years? When you're a grad, that question is not going to get you too many answers that you're actually really yeah. expecting. So I look at and I look at asking questions around their life and ask them questions around the technology. What do they love? You know, if they can't articulate to me what kind of router they have at home and when was the last time they logged onto the router and what, what make model it is. That to me is a concern. I had it in one interview and, and I'll share this. I asked someone, what router do you have at home? He's like, I don't know, it's a pretty dusty one. So immediately to me, you're not a techie. Are you the guy that, that your family or your friends go to when they have a technology issue? If you're telling me the only description you can give to me about your router at home is a dusty one, you're probably not that person. So we ascertain the technology part. Do they have a technology gene? Are they interested in technology? They might not know all the assets or facets around what we know around networking or Linux and the things that we do, but do they have the raw ingredients to want to have the passion to learn? And the second part, which is a no compromise, is around customer service. So if we're talking to customers, we're a customer-centric business, customer service is important. So I ask a three-pronged question around, describe to me the difference between good and great customer service. Tell me a time where you may have delivered it and where you have received it in any part of your life. And tell me a time where you absolutely have not experienced great customer service. What's the worst thing? Now, from those three-pronged questions, Sometimes you start hearing them start telling you the textbook answer or what they think it is, but it comes back to, no, I want specific examples where you yourself have experienced it, delivered it, tell me where you were so upset. So it's about getting into the emotion and the feeling because that's what great customer service and hospitality is. And when I get that and then I understand they love the technology, I've now got the blend, there you go. But that, as I said, it might take 50 people before I find one of them. And do you do it? Because I know the organisation uses a sort of psychometric profile. Do you use that for the grads as well? Yeah, we, we do that for more customer-centric gene. So okay. there's one for the service desk report. So I use that report to tell me whether what I saw and what I felt in that meeting from talking to the individual. So it's more around customer service, that actual report's done. It's not done around technology. Okay, but what you're saying is you're sitting there, you're doing the interview, you know you might not be right, and you just use the report, the OPEC report, to, if it matches your interview notes, they're in, and if it doesn't match your interview notes, then 
Yeah, then I've got to either go question and probe some more yeah. um, through the reference checks, ask some you know yeah. pointed questions around what here's some concerns. So you know, there's other ways to ascertain what. If I thought it was great and everything was good, but the reports come with up with some concerns, you, well, you tend to use the the reference check at that point to be the the point where we'll ask certain pointed questions to try and see if we can ascertain what that concern might be if there is a concern there. Okay, so you've got this awesome team there. You've done some other things with, as you take you back at six years, you've created this team, you've built this grad program, all fantastic, actionable information. People could copy what you've done wherever their local college or university is. What else did you do? What? How did you structure the team? How did you drive innovation or reward success? What else have you done? So there's a few things in there. Um, from a technology standpoint, if you look at, like I said, Flight Deck of a 747, it's a lot of dashboards and screens up in there. How can we get better to get that finger on the pulse on our customers? A lot of the screens, notifications and things that go on are all scripted by engineers. Look, we've bought a monitoring tool, the monitoring tool's on the screen, no one can do anything to it, some offshore team or somebody else does all the backend stuff. All the screens and everything we've got for monitoring, if someone looks at an improvement, go for it, publish it, let's try it out, and if it doesn't work, let's tune it and tweak it. So that was part one of it. The other thing was around um, the MPS. So when we do MPS with um, the team, as our needle started to move, you know, it wasn't you know minus seventy to plus eighty five overnight. It started to shift very quickly, but it, it wasn't in that sort of speed. But what we were finding was as soon as those customers understood what we had done and they were actually talking to engineers and the engineers love talking to the customers and doing the technical resolutions for them they would easily elicit a 10 out of 10 score for would you recommend and we were like there were so many 10s we want to reward these guys for the 10s they do how do we build a scheme that rewards these guys for the 10s so we launched something called hmc legends so we call it the legend so how do you become a legend you get 10 10s in a row from customer surveys so when they would get the 10 10s and then we created a on-screen live dashboard that shows when the 10s come in and there's a leaderboard and everyone sees how they're tracking on the leaderboard and the winner of that gets a 200 gift card to go buy anything they like and so the leaderboard and as soon as somebody hits 10 it restarts and off we go again to the races how successful that was is even when you brought a new grad in and they knew that, hey, there was a competition as a race who gets to 10, they'd immediately, and within the first two months, we'd almost have someone who just started the business would hit the 10 and win the award. So we were like, wow, everyone's winning these awards. What more can we do? So we created something called League of Legends. So it's like if you're a legend 10 times in a 12-month period, you could be inducted into the League of Legends. And it's like a Hall of Fame. We yeah. want to recognize you. And what would the reward for that be? We'll buy you. And the first one we did was we'll buy you a ticket to anywhere in the world. So our first legend actually became a legend. And he became an HMC legend 14 times in a 12-month period. Wow. And that was unbelievable. And no one thought that could be ever mirrored again. And, and subsequent years, we've mirrored it and bid in it. And last year, we had actually two people. It was so close to call that we actually gave two people a trip. And last year was a trip skiing in Queenstown. This year's one is a week away in Fiji. Just for doing a job and delighting customers, we want to reward 
the individuals and do something really special for them. And we celebrate that each month in our town hall ritual that we do. Everyone gets up, there's photos of them. Please stand up and, and take a bow for, for going above and beyond and, and doing your job for a customer and having that recognition. So it is very heavily celebrated across the team. We also have a similar program where we call our service delivery team command. It's and we run a Command Legends program that we only just kicked off six months ago. We've already had our first Command Legend for the quarter and we've got a big prize for them at the end of the year as well. Fantastic. And so do you end up with other pictures on the wall of, your, of all of your legends, like in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, so we, we've got pictures up in the actual HMC, but yeah. something that came up a couple of days ago is about can we celebrate and put those pictures up? So in our town hall, there's, there's a 30-foot screen and it comes up on that, but there's something we probably want to induct and put them across the office and sort of allocate a wall where we put that. So that, that's something that we're going to be doing very shortly. Good stuff. And so that, again, in lots of tech businesses, the sales guys get commission the sales guys get lionized for winning a deal and the engineers just don't and so it's just fantastic that you've got that sort of counterbalance to you know sales success you've got customer service success and these guys winning winning prizes and trips yeah um, and look and to be honest none of this would be possible like it's me coming in and saying hey we're doing this it's a top down from the business the ceo was fundamental in when we developed the plan and what that looks like and how we're going to create this uh, HMC. Every six months when each one of these graduates graduates and gets their certification, we do a team dinner to celebrate. The CEO attends that, gives them a certificate, gets a picture with each one of them. Our executive goes through that and, and does that too. So it's supported by all the senior leaders in the business and how critical this is. So you know, I, I have to thank them for supporting me and being able to provide this and have carte blanche to go and do what I want to do with. The CEO always casts a long shadow. Mm. And, uh, you know, I know Dave, I spoke to David about this a few months ago. You can see his commitment to it. I mean, look, a business doesn't go from minus 70 or I was talking to Fionn the other day at minus 50 in telco. You, know, you just don't get that to plus 70, plus 80 mm-hmm. without long-term commitment and investment. What else have you done that people should copy we've talked about recruitment we've talked about building a knowledge base we've talked about how you do reward and recognition we've talked about putting it up so that all the data is live and and you get a live feed do you measure things like you talked about sort of first call resolution yeah you measure that are there any other kpis is there pressure to is there a profit goal at all is there any time pressure or is all have you taken all of that all of those typical metrics away and said, look, we're not, that's not important. What's only important thing is the customer score, the NPS score. From the phone calls, we've taken that away. So however long, like how quickly we answer the phone call, the pressure is on. That, that's so good, that yeah. part's that's given. But when you're on the phone to the customer, there is no wrap up time or how long you're taking on the call. Our SLGs and SLAs, as, as with any provider, we've got SLAs and SLGs to our customers. But they're generally, let's say if we've got a priority one fault, that's four hours before. And ultimately what it means, you've got four hours to fix it. And after four hours, if you haven't fixed what is a priority one, now there's probably some compensation that you've got to pay to the customer. What we've set in stone for the team... You have a fixed guarantee. No, I'm saying we've got a service level guarantee. Where we say, like, once you go above four hours, there's depending on how much you go with your, your five nines or... Ah, uh, okay. Oh, right. So there's an availability, availability guarantee, right. Up to. I was just thinking, blimey, you've got a fixed guarantee. That's, 
That would be unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. Right, so you haven't. No, that's fine. Right. Yeah, go on, carry on. Sorry. As I said, we've got, let's say, four hours to resolve a P1. Since we launched the HMC, I'm glad that you raised the point, are there any other KPIs and metrics? What we said to the team was, any P1 and P2, we want to be able to say to our customers, 100% of the time, we fix those within one hour. Like, how are we going to do that? Like, sometimes we, we need to call the tier three in, the tier four in, and they've all got to get involved. Or a third-party vendor. third-party vendor, and how are we going to do that? Well, like, that's our commitment. That's what we're going to do. Because we've got a very high uptime environment. A lot of our solutions are all high availability. So if something were failed, how quickly can we put a workaround? And if it's a matter of the people that we need being available to come onto a call or physically stand by a desk to make sure that everything that's required to put a workaround in place. And yeah, obviously everyone was nervous. The CEO asked me to back that guarantee. And I was obviously very nervous about how we're gonna do that. But we've able to, over the last four years, have 100% less than one hour fix on all our P1s. It's unbelievable. And on our P2s, we've got 100%. And then people say, oh yeah, but what about your P3s and P4s? We, 97% of the time, we've resolved those within the SLA. So it's not like, you know, we're not doing that, but it's critical on that P1, P2. And that's, to be honest. Customer impact, that's the one they care about. Uh So communication, we don't care how long we stay on the phone to you. We obviously got the usual customer service standards around, hey, callbacks and what we're going to do. So we're not, it's not a drastic shift away from what anyone else does. So if anyone out there is thinking about, do I have to now throw something away that I've already got and then have to start all over again? No, the telephony systems are still there. We don't always show all the stats to the engineers. Like, you know, that's just something to know, are we healthy? But, you know, it's like when you go to see a doctor, the doctor sees a whole bunch of stats and he tells you whether you're healthy. You don't need to know. He might tell you just watch your sugar levels and watch how much you eat. That's all you've got to know. So as long as we can tune and tweak what the front end looks like and what the behavior should be, it's quite easy to to do that. So we do have masses of KPIs and, and um, stats that we look at in the back end. But what we expose to the individuals is just do a great job for the customer. What's next? What are you working on at the moment? You got any other innovations that you're planning? Um, there's a few things. Yeah. yeah, there's a few things that we've got going. Um, look, we have a lot of um, amazing stories that the team have. Every time they... Um, Heartbeat. That's right. So there's a lot of stories that the team do, but obviously everyone being humble, they don't, they don't always tell their story. And, you know, so that's what another thing. We, we're going to run a little program to promote those stories across the business, but especially out of the HMC. Those guys have a lot of touch with the customers and they just think it's just standard, great customer service. But some of those stories resonate really well. And as you can see from the industry, those stories, what we might take for granted is just a simple, hey, we did this. There's no one out there doing anything even close to that. So we want to highlight and what's recognize your, those stories. What's your... Over the last few years, and what's your go-to story? What's your best customer service story at the HMC? Oh, look, there's so many. Like, it, you know, take, it, I've been doing... Have you got one um, you can pull out? I'll put you on the spot now. You have. <laughs> no, I don't think there is one. Because if I went down the one, it, it'd be... Um, be difficult for someone who heard that one it's like what about mine what about mine so i don't think well what was the be- what was the best one last week or the last town hall I'll, I'll give you an example of one of the most recent ones where there's a customer it's a big banking customer of ours and they've got a lot of um, equipment 
in the data center. And it was critical that they get this equipment back to their site to be able to scrub this equipment and then send it off to a third party. They had organized somebody to come in, a third party vendor to come in and pick up this kit and, and take it there. And they realized that the vendor didn't have time to go there. And this was critical to a business outcome that the, the bank needed. They couldn't figure out how they were gonna do that. They, who could they trust to do this? Now, one of the senior engineers that we've got in the team doesn't live too far away from where, where this customer is and overheard the conversation, said, do you know what? I'm a cleared engineer. I don't live too far. Do you know what? I'm finishing up for the day. I was actually going to pick my mum up, but what I'll do is I'll go take these servers, drop them off at the customer, make sure that he's got the certificate with him, and then ring my mum and tell her I'll pick her up afterwards. And look, he didn't have to do that, and it's just something that we did along the way. But when, when how that resonated with the customer, we got an email back from them. You, you came to the party for us. We didn't know what we were going to do. We had vendors lined up and couriers to go pick this stuff up and they couldn't make it. They let us down. It was going to cause us thousands of potential damage to what we had already planned to do with those boxes. And it just came about. You know, you, you don't give someone training in that. We don't give them a credit card to go say, go do something and, you know, how much am I allowed to spend? It's basically empowered to go do and how can you delight a customer so you know i'll use that one as probably one of the most okay. recent ones now that's good it's that as you say it's you can't train people to do that they've got to go looking to find opportunities to deliver great customer service yeah, it's just having your antenna up to yeah. to those situations tony that's been fantastic where where can people find you if they want to pick your brains further or get in touch send you fan mail <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn yeah so Tony Panda on LinkedIn so you can contact me through there and Panda spelt P-A-N-D-H-E-R fantastic Tony thank you very much indeed thank you Dom